Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. Apologies, we're a little bit late due to a few technical hitches, but I can assure you we have a great lineup of speakers for you today. Today's virtual conference, we're asking the question, what can the US and the EU learn from each other in terms of accelerating climate change? Today's virtual conference from your active is supported by the Environmental Defence Fund. So we want to talk about this. Please join in online. Use the hashtag EA Debates because we would really like to hear your thoughts, questions, comments and views and you can of course put those to our panellists. We have a Q&A function, I am opening that now so feel free to put your questions in there. Now the Paris Agreement in 2015 set the way forward uh, for countries to act together in defence of the climate. Now of course we know what happened with the US, we won't labour the point but since the Trump era the Biden administration has come back on full throttle and is making a big effort to repair some of the damage done in terms of a climate action policy. So there are generally good signs, but there are still gaps to overcome, especially ahead of the COP26 in Glasgow, as sort of a point that we're all looking towards in the coming months. The climate action is at the heart of the European Green Deal, of course, and by 2050, Europe aims to become the first climate neutral continent. Yet despite that, the EU and the US are of course second and third largest emitters of greenhouse gases. Uh, third and second, if we like it that way around. So we're going to talk about these issues, but we're also going to talk about whether the different approaches together become more than the sum of their parts. Now, joining me to discuss that today, we have five excellent speakers. Joining us from across the Atlantic, we have Jonathan Pershing, who is the Climate and Foreign Policy Advisor at the Office of the US Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry. We've been hearing a lot about him in the media lately and their views on what they're going to do next. We also have now from Vice President Fran Timmermans Cabinet in the European Commission, Dirk Samson, who's head of the executive. We have Pascal Canfin, who is an MEP and chair of the NV Committee in the European Parliament. We have Jutta Gutland, also MEP. MEP and member of the NV Committee, uh, also joining us in the European Parliament, and Jill Duggan, Executive Director for the Environmental, Environmental Defence Fund in Europe. Thank you all very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. I'm sure we will have a very fruitful discussion over the next hour and a bit. So, first of all, I want to give you a round of opportunity to sort of set out your stall and maybe give us your opening position, but I want to do that in quite a quick way. So, the premise of today's discussion is what can the EU and the US learn from each other. So I want to quickly go through each of you to say, in principle, do you think there's something that they could learn from each other? And is it about equal or has one side more to learn from the other? Jonathan, I'm going to give you a minute to start off and tell us your thoughts on that. So thanks very much, Jennifer. And it's a pleasure to be uh, joining all of my colleagues uh, this, this, this afternoon, this morning here. I think the answer to the question is really quite straightforward. Yes, there's a great deal to learn from each other. This is not a problem that any of us yet know how to solve. Uh, I think Europe has been forward leaning and has made enormous strides while frankly under the Trump administration, the US was, was backsliding. On the other hand, we had a series of state and local programs that really kept to the course and developed some new and innovative policy. So I think on that front, there's a great deal to learn. But I think as we look forward, the objective that we are seeking to meet globally is to keep the rise in temperatures to well below two degrees and to strive to keep them to only 1.5 degrees. That means that we actually have to get to net zero globally, not just in one of our countries, not just in a few of our countries, but globally by the mid-century. 
And we don't know how to do that yet. We have to explore options. That means everything, not just from increased efficiency, but net zero buildings. That doesn't just mean we change how many um, liters a car might use in gasoline, but it has to use none. It doesn't just mean power plants that are more efficient and that might use gas instead of coal. It means getting to net zero solutions and capturing any carbon that's in the atmosphere. That set of technologies, we can learn from each other. Those policies, we can learn from each other. Making the transition in terms of communities, we can learn from each other. And I think there's a great deal to do. And certainly on our administration, we're looking forward to doing so. Thanks. Rick, I mean, the EU often likes to think itself a leader in all these things. Can it learn from the US or is it just going to be in teaching mode? <laughs> it would be a bit arrogant huh, to uh, <laughs> turn it to teaching mode uh, for this kind of purposes. So let me turn it around. Yes, first of all, we can learn a lot from the US. Um, uh, two topics or two examples for that, innovation and finance. Uh, the way that the US moves innovation forward, uh, even under the Trump era, basically, is uh, mind-boggling. Uh, and the way you can finance your innovations to mature scale-ups and even big companies is also something to learn from uh, a lot. And, and maybe you can also learn a, a something from us in terms of setting standards, uh, uh, pricing CO2, etc. But let me turn to a subject that we uh, have to work together um, uh, and, and we can really team up instead of learning from each other, which is uh, climate diplomacy. I think the US and the EU have a common interest to um, team up, uh, join forces and work our way towards Glasgow, taking every country in the world on board in this incredible journey towards climate neutrality. Uh, it needs to happen right now. Uh, so the Biden administration didn't come one day too early uh, in order to uh, make this happen. We have well, a bit over half a year to go towards Glasgow, and we have to use every hour of that period to join forces uh, in our climate diplomacy to create a success at the end of the year, because only then we can save planet Earth. Thank you. And of course, the, the, the schedule has been a bit disrupted by COVID. We'll come back on to talking about the implications of that in a bit. Pascal, let me turn to you, because I know that in the Envy Committee, you've been pushing for higher and higher standards. So tell me a little bit about what you think can be learned across regions. Well, good afternoon and good morning to, to Jonathan. I'm very happy to, to see you back uh, in power. We met uh, when we negotiated the Paris Agreement uh, years ago. Uh, so, uh, well, of course, we are going to have a lot, a lot in common. I mean, the stars have never been so aligned. We have the same objective for 2050, the same rhythm of reductions of emissions by up to 2030. We are going to have more or less the same standards for mobility and EVs and so on. So it has never happened, such an alignment of stars. So we are going to learn and to progress and in hand. And we are going to cooperate and we are going to compete. And that's the beauty of it. That's the a good race to the top. And, and we are going to face that uh, in a very uh, constructive, uh, friendly manner. But for some aspects that will be very easy to cooperate and to find the same standards and to move forward in other fields, 
we are going to have maybe more needs for discussion uh, when it comes to, for instance, green finance standards, uh, for instance, the, 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 the proposal we are going to put in the European law uh, in the coming weeks of a carbon border adjustment mechanism and so on and so on. So we are going to cooperate, we are going to learn, and we are going to compete for the best. And that's exactly uh, the proper and the right agenda we need. And it's actually the only agenda uh, we need to win uh, all together this uh, uh, climate battle. Yuta, sorry, can you hear me? I think I have a little bit of a, yes. a, a slow microphone there. Sorry, I would like to hear your, your thoughts on, uh, on what exactly you think the different parties can learn from each other in principle, if there is something to be learned. And we will get into the nitty gritty of, of the detail in due course. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, I, I don't know if... Uh if you see and hear me properly, because it was a bit of delay there, uh, but uh, I, I start. Um, thank you, Jennifer, for the question, and thank you for being um, participating in this panel. Jonathan, it's really uh, a pleasure to, to, to hear you, and uh, uh, I must say, as everyone, that is a very big uh, uh, positive news for the world that the U.S. is turning uh, to the future and change its direction and take a leadership on climate. And I really and truly believe it will be a, a companionship between the European Union and the US for the future. I still think um, we must understand that um, even though I, I completely agree with uh, Diederik that uh, climate financing will be uh, crucial and also all the cooperation to make sure that we have a sufficient result in, in Glasgow this year uh, is essential. But I also think it's important that we always acknowledge that we have a certain leadership also uh, to show the world that we do our own homework. Uh, without that, we will not be credible in the discussion on what others should do. I mean, I, I remember from... Um, uh, Katowice in Poland, uh, how many countries said if the US is not uh, uh, on the Paris Agreement and helping out, why should we with their history? And I think that uh, psychologically uh, effect will still be there a bit uh, since we have a history of emitting, since we have a history of being the global emitters. Uh, we really need also to acknowledge that and acknowledge that we need to do more. And I think in the companionship, we should also work on the sectorial legislation and see how we can help out. I think the ETS is the big sectorial legislation in the European Union. And I really believe it would be great if we could have uh, more cooperation on how the industry and energy sector uh, can compete to be best, as Pascal mentioned, and uh, to have similar system of the, as the ETS uh, and, and see how we can improve that further, both in the European Union and in the US, that would be very welcomed. And we should also acknowledge that we are actually now in the EU going still uh, in a direction where we would be uh, somewhere between uh, over two and uh, maybe reaching three degrees and the US is actually above four degrees so we still have a lot to do. 
Yeah, those, those figures are still quite stark, as, as you say. Jill, let me ask you a slightly different question because the Environmental Defence Fund is supporting today's event. Why do you think it was this question in particular that we're posing today? Um, well, I've worked on both sides of the Atlantic in, in the EU, in DG Klima and in Brussels more generally and in the US. And I think there is an awful lot to learn from each side as long as we listen carefully and we also admit to where things haven't gone quite as straightforwardly as we might. The EU has been a climate leader for 20 years plus, but occasionally when you're a leader, there are some missteps along the way when you're trying to crack a, a new and difficult problem. So we need to be able to acknowledge that. I mean, diesel is one that springs to mind where we encourage diesel for climate reasons and created air quality issues. Um, but we've also, we're looking at sectors that the US isn't yet looking at, such as buildings, such as the importance of the circular economy to tackling climate change. And as Diedrich said, on innovation and on finance, there's a lot to learn from the US. So I'm really hopeful that now we have a new administration in Washington and they have shown themselves committed to tackling climate change with a real um, dynamic start, uh, that there can be a really new era of collaboration, cooperation, honesty and listening between the two sides. Now, I do, I see some questions are already coming in, but I will remind people again, of course, you can use the Q&A function on the platform or you can send it on social media, hashtag EA debates. I'll be keeping an eye on Twitter here as well on my screen. Uh, I know some of people are already asking questions. It's, it's certainly a hot topic. Jonathan, let me come back to you. And, you know, because there is, is a lot of questions about this new administration. Why has this been such a priority, or it seems to be from this side of the Atlantic so early on? And how have you, How's the exercise been to sort of, if you like, turn the juggernaut around so quickly? So I think there are several pieces that it's worth um, viewers noting. The first one is that there is an overwhelming level of popular support to work on climate in the country. Uh, it extends across both the Democratic and the Republican Party. It's not just a single partisan question. While Congress has been more uh, reluctant to move, it turns out that even on the Republican side, the Republican constituency seeks more action. And this was one of the major campaign issues on which President Biden was elected. So there's a clear incentive and motivation. The second point that I would note is that this has been a really bad season. I would say the last several years, we are seeing increasing damages in the US. Uh, I came to the administration, uh, had been living in California. Many people may have followed the news of the devastating wildfires that California had. I was talking to the former governor uh, just yesterday, actually, Governor Jerry Brown, and he was saying that he lives now just outside of the Bay Area of San Francisco, a little bit up into the hills, and already it looks like fire season in May. We don't usually have fire season in California until the fall. So this is just changing the dynamics and the flooding in Iowa and the uh, huge hurricanes in the Gulf Coast. So that's the second reason. The third reason, which I think is really useful to think through, is the private sector increasingly sees opportunity. This is no longer conceived of, I have to give something up. It's now conceived of, I can make a profit. I can look at a different model. And if I wanna compete in the world of the future, against a China that's moving quickly, against an India that's actually looking at aggressive solar capacity, with Europe that's got enormous technical innovation, then we have, to, we have to get on, we have to move forward. And that too changes the paradigm. Instead of being a cost, it's now a profit center. And then finally, I think this is something the president is personally committed to. 
He lived uh, and worked with President Obama. I worked for him at that particular point uh, when I served in the administration. He sees that you can make process progress. He sees a multilateral program that can change the world with colleagues working together on difficult, intractable problems. And this is a moment to seize that because the science is clear. We've got this next decade to kind of turn the course. And so therefore waiting isn't an option. Moving quickly is the answer. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question. I mean, what would you say to people, perhaps outside the U.S., but even within the U.S., who fear that the U.S. is over-promising on its new targets, that, that it's um, great aspirations, but is there the, the, the background to deliver? So, you know, one of the questions I think that people legitimately do look at is how do you look at the history of the back and forth with the political system? And, and Yutta raised this a little bit in her, her questions and her comments. I think it's a good thing to think about. But if I look at where we are today, notwithstanding the Trump administration period of four years where the federal government pushed back, the United States is on track to meet the 2020 goals that we set. Those were done earlier in Copenhagen. We look to be very close to being on track to meeting the 2025 goals that were set in Paris. And that's partly because most states in the nation decided to move forward. They decided to take action anyway. And the federal government was unable to stop that and couldn't if it wanted to. So what you now have is this kind of consensus that's rolling forward. The only other piece that I'd note is that it looks like you can do these things with technology that's available today. A decade ago, it would have been much, much harder. But Tesla, an American uh, electric car company, is now the most valued car company in our country. It's extraordinary. And you look at what's happening with the General Motors, which is the largest of our American car companies, and it's now committed to zero carbon vehicles. It's not going to reverse course. It's planning that agenda, changing its production lines, moving forward on that front. And if I look at Europe, a similar thing is happening. Volkswagen's making some of the exact same kinds of choices. We're seeing this throughout the global car economy, but we're also seeing it in industry. We're seeing it in renewable energy. We're seeing it in efficiency in buildings. So I think it's a very different world. The 50% number that we have set is not only meetable, but I think we'll do it relatively quickly. I think there'll be support for it. And I think many countries around the world can either do or exceed that level. Thank you. Well, I think Tesla's still a bit beyond the reach of your average citizen, but I take your point very well. Uh, Yuta, let me come back to you because I know I've just asked Jonathan whether there's this danger that the US is over-promising. Do you think there's a danger the EU is over-promising? I know you slightly alluded to that. No, um, I would I would not say over-promising. Um, I'm, what I would be afraid is uh, that we are not doing enough. I'm sure that we can reach our target for 2030, definitely with our 55% netto target and also what uh, will be done also with uh, the, the sink uh, that will even exceed that. Uh, I, I'm sure we can reach that. Um, what I'm afraid of is that when we look at the figures, um, it will not be enough to actually um, uh, defend the Paris Agreement if if we don't uh, also encourage the world to to do more and uh, I would say that we we should actually go faster to 2030. So I think it will be crucial that we get a very good uh, uh, sectorial uh, legislation package uh, done and that we actually exceed 
uh, our own targets for 2030. And I also think it's extremely important that we also learn from the US when it comes to uh, in, uh, the innovation and the investment plan so that we uh, accelerate uh, what is done on the other hand, not only the target and the sectorial legislation, but also the investments will be crucial, I believe. Let me turn to you because, you know, the flip side of uh, over-promising is under-delivering and that's always a concern. Uh, how do you um, perhaps move on to, uh, um, you know, how does, as the Commission, Diederik, uh, actually set the, the, the pace to, you know, make sure that member states can keep up and that the member, some member states aren't left behind? Because that is surely a consideration. Yeah, uh, certainly. So designing a just transition, uh, a transition that is fair for everyone and leaves no one behind, is um, much more difficult than designing just a transition. Um, I wouldn't say the latter is easy. Uh, it's still quite difficult to uh, reach to a minus 55% uh, emissions in 230 and climate neutrality in 250. But doing that in a way that everybody can get along, that's, uh, the, that's the real uh, gist of, of our work uh, at the moment. And what we've been doing since we presented the Green Deal almost one and a half year ago, uh, in COVID times, we've moved forward in legislating that target, obviously, but most importantly, designing a package that does exactly this, uh, getting us towards a minus 55 emission target in 230, climate neutrality in 250, and making that possible for everyone. Uh, so we will come up with a 12 legislative proposals, and I can tell Jonathan, uh, if you have to do the same in the US, buckle up, because it is bloody hard to do. It's like solving a 12-dimensional Sudoku, which is actually mathematical uh, impossible. Uh, but this is possible. Um, it's hard, but we can do it. The problem with is obviously that in that in those proposals, everything is connected with everything else. If you move one needle somewhere here, everything else starts to move too. And you have to keep an eye on everything in order to, to make uh, certain that countries like Poland or Bulgaria that have obviously a very different economy and also a very different energy system can get along in the same pace, in the same wagon as Luxembourg, France and the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, and that's, well, I say that's that's the main uh, job that we are doing right now. I'm confident that we can and that by mid-July we will present the legislative package. Well, um, it sounds, Diederik, like you're keeping quite a lot of plates spinning at the same time. Um, one thing I suppose that may have caused some of them to crash down has, of course, been the COVID pandemic. So, um, Pascal, let me come to you. Do you how do you see planning for the future while also being aware of potential disruptive crises like this? I mean, is there a silver lining to the epidemic or, or are we just looking that it is just constantly putting th people on the back foot? Well, you know, at the start of the uh, COVID crisis, so uh, a year ago, some voices uh, started to say, well, uh, let's deprioritize climate action, uh, Green Deal, and so on. And they lost. They lost. Uh, and we managed to have a recovery plan uh, agreed uh, last year, and we start now uh, deploying the money, uh, which 
is clearly aligned with our Greenville priorities. And I think uh, it's more or less now uh, the same in the US, so uh, it still have to be passed uh, in the Congress, but uh, uh, I guess that at the end of the day, we will have for the first time a real uh, it, uh, public money uh, stimulus that will help us to speed up the transition to climate neutrality. We failed, I might say we, it's both in the US and in the EU or EU member states, we failed 10 years ago to do so. The two agenda, the macroeconomic agenda, the recovery agenda and the climate agenda was completely disconnected. Now we managed to have it right also because, and I insist on what Jonathan said, because we have the solutions now. We can partner with the progressive side of the business community that after having invested for years and years and years, now have the all, almost all the technologies we need. And that makes a real big difference back compared to 10 years ago. And the last thing I wanted to share, uh, complemented to what Diderik said, that beyond the climate law and uh, beyond the July package, actually we are going to change more than 50 European laws, actually 54 European laws between now on uh, and the end of 2022. 13 of them will be changed in July, but then you have other package in green finance, in biodiversity, in circular economy, and so on and so on. At the end of the day, we change 50 flows in less than two years. That's a huge, huge thing, a huge change, and that's why I can consider that we are entering a, a systemic change in the European economy to deliver for real on carbon neutrality. Jill, um, are you happy with the speed of uh, change and also perhaps reflect on whether uh, COVID-19 has disrupted matters? Well, the speed of change is never fast enough. We know we're, we're facing this truly existential crisis, but I'm also a sort of gloomy optimist and I look back as others have at where we were 10 years ago and how far we've come since then. And 10 years ago, if you'd said that, you know, X number of countries were looking to be uh, climate neutral by the middle of the century, or in some cases, net zero carbon, and we can talk about the, the um, taxonomy there, but then that would have been unthinkable. And if you think about what we saw about the price of offshore wind or so many of these technologies, which the prices have plummeted and we have done far better than we could have dreamt. However, we are not going fast enough and there will be some hiccups along the road. And COVID has undoubtedly been this huge global tragedy for the number of people who have uh, lost relatives, uh, others who's, who have experienced the, you know, the consequences of long COVID, others who have lost their jobs. It has been this most appalling tragedy. Yet, out of this, you know, the green recovery does give us a real opportunity to think about the way we live. And I think some of those discussions were going on prior to COVID about how we live, where we live, and we've speeded up some of those things. So the kind of circularity, how we, how long we keep goods for, um, how we travel to work, how we live, all of these things become um, much more um, dynamic. And I think in creating jobs, I think there's a recognition that, you know, we need to be creating sustainable jobs that will see people through, not recreating the old jobs that would have disappeared after a few years anyway. 
And I, I think there's a real acceptance as well, whether it's not just progressive business anymore, it's business recognizing that you need to be able to investigate, invest against something. And you cannot make a bet on investing that fossil fuels are going to hang around because that's just not possible anywhere in the world. And I think one of the things that came up at the Biden summit was those countries that either came a bit like Brazil and said one thing and then went back on it the next day, or like Australia, who looked like they hadn't got the memo. You know, they didn't understand and they they came along and listened to their business plan being destroyed as country after country said they would be, you know, uh, no longer investing in coal or in fossil fuels. So I think we're at this, you know, this the tragedy has created an opportunity and that's a, a really, you know, dreadful position to be in. But I think it's accelerated a lot of the thinking that was going on before and it create, creates an opportunity to look at really sustainable jobs and making sure that we understand what the future will be um, so that we can, you know, people can, people and companies can invest in it. Well, you mentioned Brazil there, and I do want to follow up with you and ask whether you feel that the EU and the US are similar enough, they understand each other well enough, that they could team up and, if you like, be leaders for countries like China, India, Russia, Brazil. Uh, Jonathan mentioned earlier that, that China and India already have aspirations of their own. Do you think EU-US leadership in climate is the way forward or is it more of a collaborative effort? Well, I think if you have the EU and the US leading on climate, then there's very little place for any others to go. And certainly China you know, has, has made very good noise. It's not always as ambitious as we might want, but they certainly understand the climate issue. And as I said, it became apparent, I think, at the Biden summit that other countries such as South Korea and Japan you know, are moving in the same direction. And that left those such as Australia, who look to supply fossil fuels to the rest of the world, or Saudi Arabia, looking like they hadn't brought enough with them, because they really will have to change their business plans. I think there's huge potential. If you look at an issue that Environmental Defence Fund is very interested in, is tackling methane emissions that create warming at the moment, you know, because they're short-lived but very intense greenhouse gases, that there are things that the US is a huge producer, uh, the EU is a huge consumer of internationally traded gas. You know, if you get countries like the US and the EU acting together, you have an al almost unstoppable force globally. And that can make change happen much, much faster. Well, I'm going to turn now. We've got so many questions coming in. I'm going to take a few of them now. Diederik, I'm going to ask you, uh, there's one here from uh, Joe Darden. It's, it's similar to the one there that I have just put to Jill, um, which is how can the EU and the US collaborate specifically on aviation emissions uh, to ensure that they're properly addressed post-COVID? That's an interesting uh, sector to, uh, to talk about in an international context. Um, as I said, in a part of our uh, package of legislative proposals in July will contain uh, putting an ETS, the emission trading system, applying that to uh, aviation. The problem with that is we can't address worldwide aviation if we do not have partners that will do the same. Um, and the first partner that you look for is obviously the US, if you look at the amount of planes going between our continents. So it would be an incredible step forward if the US, first of all, starts to apply a carbon price or another measure to its own domestic aviation industry, which is quite big, the biggest in the world. And then we can uh, start talking together about combining or connecting those two systems. 
that would be the holy grail uh, I'm looking for. And contrary to the holy grail, we're going to find this one and pretty soon too. Thank you. Uh, now, quite a few questions, Jonathan, that I think uh, are probably directed at you. Um, someone anonymous, so we will cast no aspersions, says, how future-proof are President Biden's climate commitments or policies with regard to a potential future Republican president or Congress? So, listen, I think it's the same kind of thing we spoke about a moment ago. Uh, a great deal matters as to what kinds of policies are in place uh, that certainly matters. Those can be moved back and forward, depending on the administration or the government. We've seen that in other countries, not just in the U.S. But it's much, much harder to do things when the steel is in the ground and when uh, buildings are built and when infrastructure is deployed. So if I look, for example, at a car company um, and think about the requirements to change a production line, it takes them five to ten years to do that. They're doing it now. I don't see they're going to reverse it or I look at a power plant. If I build a new solar facility, I'm not gonna tear it down when a new country, a new government comes along and has a different vision. I'm gonna keep it running. And if I've retired the old coal plant and taken it apart, I'm not gonna build a new one. Donald Trump tried to build a bunch of new coal plants and not one got built. We actually retired coal plants in this country during the entirety of his tenure. So to me, it's really about getting the things done on the ground, communities to change, people and investments to move to a different different direction with a different vision. And if you do that, I think it has enormous longevity. I don't think it moves. It doesn't mean the policy will be sufficient. I think there is always a danger of backsliding. I look at the conversations we've been having uh, in places like Australia. It really has gone back and forth. We've had some governments that have been very progressive, very interested in climate policy, and other governments much less interested. And they all the way through have never gotten out of coal. But then the States is actually getting out of coal. So for us, it's a different kind of a problem. It's can we continue to make the kind of progress that we need? Because as others on the panel have said, we don't can't stop now. We can't rest on our laurels. We have to keep going. Well, let's stay with coal because Peter Dipoulis here, one of our viewers, has asked, uh, or as I said, uh, he would love to hear more about joint EU-US approach to advancing a global coal phase-out. Um, Jutta, maybe I could ask you to talk about uh, how the EU is influencing this global uh, call for coal to be phased out. Yes, of course. And <clears throat> I think uh, one of the important uh, discussions is to take um, to, to make sure that we have that uh, directed also to China uh, and um, that has been a discussion going on in the in the last COP uh, so I remember also that from uh, Katowice that we had discussions with the delegation from China uh, but it is really important that we stop the investment of coal plants in the world and that the big investors uh, stop doing that so I believe uh, it would be tremendous important uh, in Glasgow to get uh, a ban on this and make sure that we we stop this uh, globally and uh, I, I think that if the US and uh, the European Union can uh, can have a cooperation and take a leadership on the, such a discussion with the important countries, that would be a, a big win. Thank you. Um, 
Pascal, similar question to you, um, but I want to know which sort of EU policies do you think are, if you like, ready for export? Um, I'm seeing here people commenting on the carbon border adjustment mechanism, for example. Well, I, I mentioned this uh, issue myself uh, at the beginning because I know that we are going to uh, have a deep discussion with our US uh, friends uh, uh, in order precisely to explain what we want to do the reasons why we want to do so and what we do not want to do. For instance, what we do not want to do is to enter a trade war on climate. So that's why the basic requirement, which is a full red line for all the EU institutions, is that this carbon border adjustment mechanism is and will be compliant with WTO rules. And once you are within the space of WTO, you are not in the trade war space, you are not in the protectionism space, you are not in the discriminatory space, you are in the space agreed by all the signatories, including the US, China, and so on, of the WTO rules. So that's a very important uh, message to share with the US. And then, of course, uh, uh, another debate, and maybe building on what Diderik said, is being able, now we have our set of 50 laws. The US are building it rapidly, and maybe that would be through the EPAs for some uh, in the Congress, but you are working now, you have set your, your target, you are working on the implementation of the target. So that's the right time to see to what extent we can have and, 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 and showcase, I would say, bilateral agreements, exactly, for instance, on international aviation, saying, okay, on a flight between Washington DC and Berlin or Paris or Stockholm, then we are going to apply, because we agree, the two sides, a price of carbon on X. You know, that kind of thing, and there are, of course, not plenty, but a couple of them, that would be a very, very important message to convey and to move forward. The last comment is uh, on China. Uh, I think, uh, of course, we could, add, we could look at the relationship with China both sides. We are dependent on China for a lot of products. And the, 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 the COVID crisis made a, another huge demonstration of that. But China is dependent on us for exports. I mean, exports in the US, exports to the EU are by far the vast majority of the exports from China. Uh, so that's why. Uh, if we put the right standards in place, standards in the European market to access the European market, standards in the EU, uh, US market to access the EU market, and the standards are either similar or at least converging, which makes sense because we are after the same target of climate neutrality, that is just impossible, impossible for China to escape. So that's another way to look at the Chinese debate. And that's why. I, I think it would be a good idea uh, to have a G3 on climate, a G3 summit under the French presidency of the EU, so next, uh, uh, the first semester 2022, where we would have uh, European leaders, US leaders, and the Chinese uh, uh, leader uh, at the same time, uh, at the same room, in order to precisely move this climate agenda forward, and coal will be, of course, one of the key topics. Okay, well, let me get uh, let me take the temperature then, Jonathan. What do you think of a, a G three summit? 
So listen, I, I think there's all sorts of room for multiple kinds of conversations. Um, they, they, they fall into different categories. So at the summit that we just did, that President Biden hosted, we, we took the G20 essentially under an initiative of something called the Major Economies Forum. Uh, if you look at the top 20 countries, they're responsible for about 80% of emissions. Um, the number, f- uh, the, the third largest country actually is is not uh, is not in Europe. The third largest is India. So if you had a G5, you'd bring a slightly different constituency to the table. I, I actually quite agree, though, um, with Pascal that the the dynamics of what drives export economies is certainly in part a question of what kind of import questions they're facing. So if we set standards and we decide what's going to be required, then I think those who want to export into our systems will have to meet those minimum standards. I think we should think about that. I do note that it's extremely complicated to think about the structure of a border tax. I don't disagree in principle that it has value, but I think that it's got enormous complexity. So at the moment, Europe, for example, has established a price the United States is not moving with those kinds of policies. Uh, that's not been the political choice that we've made. We tried to do that a number of years ago, and it didn't move politically. We have some states that have done it, but it hasn't taken off at a national level. But we do have substantial and rigorous both investments and regulatory programs. But those are somewhat harder to compare and contrast. So if we look at the target that the United States has set, it's 50 to 52% number, and compare that to the European 55% number, those are more or less equivalent. So if the United States is actually moving to implement, but it has a different price, implicit price per ton, does it then have a border adjustment? I don't know how you do that. Does China, which is moving much more slowly and we wish would move more quickly, does it face the adjustment? But supposing it doesn't actually apply to China, what are the dynamics of the application into Africa? which might be not moving well at all, but have a lot less capacity. Do we therefore apply it differentially? I think these are problems that can be addressed, but they're not straightforward. Thank you. Uh, Duderick, I'm going to get you to follow up on that, but I'm going to throw into the mix a couple of questions that we have as well. Martin Menner has asked whether you would consider a VAT-like carbon consumption tax implementable in the EU and the US as an alternative to the carbon border adjustment. And we also have a a very straightforward question uh, from uh, Frank Watson asking whether a border mechanism, border adjustment mechanism will have to be imposed on imports from all the EU's trading partners in order to be WTO compatible. So uh, perhaps you could tackle those and also react to Jonathan. Well, the answer to the last question is yes. Um, And the answer to the second question about uh, considering an excise duty type of uh, tax, a VAT type of tax, um, that's still one of the options that we are considering in drafting the legislation. Uh, We are looking at a wide range of options and doing that. uh, So an excise duty is, um, well, has the, the advantage of simplicity. Um, it has a disadvantage of being less effective in its original target, uh, which is reducing CO2 emissions not only within the EU, but also outside of the EU, because that's exactly what, what the CBAM should cater for. Uh, and answering Jonathan's questions, uh, yes, those are, it seems like you've almost been listening into our internal discussions and conversations, but uh, you obviously haven't, but you're knowledgeable enough to, to indeed tackle the right issues. Um, 
I mean, if we would apply a CBAM uh, and not an excise duty, but a real carbon border adjustment mechanism, we adjust at the border for the carbon content of uh, the imported goods. So if something from the US has the same carbon footprint as something produced in Europe, which I think is the ultimate goal and obviously also envisaged in the efforts, minus 55, minus 52 and the other side of the Atlantic. If, if we end up with products that have the same carbon footprint and a reduced carbon footprint, preferably, there's no adjustment needed. If there is a difference in carbon footprint, but you have paid at the other side of the Atlantic, your fair share of the price in terms, and whether that's a real direct price like an ETS or a direct carbon tax or a regulatory measure because you can monetize those measures uh, then also uh, that will be uh, accounted for so there are ways to design it uh, it's pretty difficult or complex uh, but there are and we are determined to do so um, even more because we are encouraged in its effect which is it is having already now at the moment because exactly this discussion that we for instance have with the us but also with china and also with other trading partners is driving policy forward in the eu but also in those trading partners and that's exactly what should happen question here uh, that's come in actually from twitter thank you very much for using the hashtag ea debates please keep doing so um the point is being made that the the ets system took a long time to become effective in the EU. And is there anything that the US could learn to, to help speed it up and, and to find ways to, to maybe take advantage of, of the lessons learned? Um, Pascal, it's directed at you, but I will come back to the others to hear their thoughts on this as well. Pascal, first. Well, uh, just a, a word on, on CBAM to conclude the discussion, or not to conclude it, but to, uh, to uh, before moving to another uh, topic. I cannot agree more with what uh, Dieterich just said. And uh, importantly, uh, we are thinking about explicit, what the economists are calling explicit cut on, uh, sorry, price on carbon and implicit price on carbon. And just, you mentioned that as well, uh, Dieterich and also uh, uh, Jonathan. So I think when you put all the package together, w WTO compliance, uh, um, explicit plus implicit, carbon footprint, and of course, uh, the, 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 the treatments that will be specific for the LDCs, then at the end of the day, you have something that flies, which is not uncooperative, which is open, but which is fair also for climate and for our industries, because otherwise, I can't see how you can compete uh, with a price on carbon and that it leads you to the ETS. We have now, without having, even without having changed the rules, not yet, we have now a carbon price more than 50 euros per ton. So more than 60 and so dollars per ton. I mean, that starts being very significant. At 50, 60 euros per ton, just forget about the competitiveness of coal, for instance. And we cannot ask our industries to operate in this uh, at that level of price, which is needed, without having a level playing field. I cannot go to uh, uh, the, uh, the, the workers uh, in Poland, in France, in Germany, and so on, in the industry, and say, okay, guys, 
sorry about your plant, it's relocated in Ukraine, it's relocated in Turkey, it's relocated in Morocco, or we're going to import more from India just because of the uh, higher carbon price we have in the EU. It's not, it's not politically, societally impossible. So that's why we need to move the two at the same time, higher carbon price, 50, 60, that's the right target, and the carbon border adjustment mechanism as one tool to have the level playing field. But Jill, I, I think you were raising your hand there. You wanted to add something. Um, well, partly because I was deeply involved in the development of the carbon market in Europe, but also advised California. And I think one of the things that that demonstrated was that there were lessons to be learned by California from Europe and then vice versa as well, as we sought to, to make the carbon market in Europe more robust and, and achieve the prices that we're getting today. So I think that's that's a really important point about why collaboration is so and dialogue so so very important between uh, different blocks around the world and and at state level as well. The other point I wanted to make was don't over don't underestimate the importance of the political statement. And in the run up to the Paris um, climate talks, I was working in industry at the time, and they were you know in industries that were covered by lots of regulation in Europe on, on carbon and carbon emissions. But nothing could quite compare with the statements that came from world leaders and business leaders in the run up to Paris, which had a profound effect on the way a number of industries saw the importance of this issue. And I think the Biden summit has had that effect. I hope that COP26 will have the same effect. But I think, you know, when we look at the tools available to us, don't forget that actually just saying what we're trying to do and why is very, very powerful and important and getting that consistent message from leaders of industry, leaders of government around the world does really help move us forward. Thank you. Yuta, I believe you uh, wanted to come in on the ETS as well. Yes, please. Thank you, Jennifer. And also on what Jill just said, it's so important. I, I really also believe that that's, that's the big uh, game changer. When the, the great political leaders in the world uh, are committed, it changed everything. Uh, and I think uh, th that dynamic has been in the, in the European Union since the new commission uh, took, uh, took its position. And I think now with Biden that the same thing is happening in the US and that's, that's fantastic in front of Glasgow. And this raised uh, expectations. Uh, on the ETS, I would like to say that I had the privilege to work with uh, the revision on the ETS last time. And we now see that uh, um, the prices are really uh, higher. And uh, also after the climate law that I also worked with, uh, we can also see that the ETS is working better and gets uh, more sharp. And I really, for me, uh, I think what the U.S. should do is to try to copy uh, the ETS uh, from the European Union and skip a couple of um, uh, historic, uh, not mistakes, but phases in the ETS reform and also see that this market-based mechanism is really, really sharp uh, because it, it is... It is not something where the politicians need to go in and, and change the prices and the dynamics. And this is something that will automatically work year by year. And by the revision that we are going to have this legislature, we will, uh, we will certainly make it even, even a sharper climate tool for the future. So the, in the best of worlds, we would 
uh, have a similar system in the US and could cooperate with this. And I also like to add on the ETS that I, of course, agree with what Diedrich said on the aviation, but I also would like to throw into this discussion the maritime sector, which should not fly under the radar or sail under the radar, maybe a better expression. Uh, we, we really need to take the global uh, leadership when it comes to the maritime sector also, and I think that the US can, can help out there. Thank you. Um, well, well, Jonathan, this gets to the very crux of our topic of discussion today, which is what the EU and the US can learn from each other. Uh, are you taking uh, heart from, from your suggestions of maybe leapfrogging certain barriers? So listen, I always think that the lessons that other people have learned can be applied. And uh, one of the things that I think we don't do enough of is that kind of exchange. The politics, as we all know, are local and they're different across both sides of the Atlantic. And so part of what we each are having to do is to think about how those politics work. Europe has managed, I think, uh, an impressive feat of some redistributional politics that we're seeking to do at home as well. Uh, I look in particular at the dynamics and some of the history over the last 30 years of this negotiation uh, between the center and places like Poland. Earlier on, some of the things that were going on in Spain these are hard political questions. We on the US side have some similar kinds of constraints. Parts of our country too that are deeply uh, connected to a fossil fuel legacy, but employ enormous numbers of people. And I include the oil and gas and coal sector and the power sector in that. So is the transition in both cases gonna be the same? Yes, in the sense that it in both cases will decarbonize. Perhaps no in the sense of the kinds of programs that are adopted. Let me turn to a separate piece, though, which I think we've also talked a bit about and which I think warrants more attention. And that comes back a little bit to the innovation discussion. So the International Energy Agency has said that only about half of the technologies that they, they believe will be part of the future solution are economic and commercial today. In other words, we know what many of them are. We probably know what 90% are, but they're not commercial. I include everything from the fact that in many parts of the world, renewable energy is still more expensive than fossil energy. And so therefore the transition is difficult to other things that are yet more difficult still. What's the alternative for an airplane instead of using a fossil fuel based fuel source to things like how do I capture carbon from the atmosphere? That's an area where I also believe that the US and the EU could do a great deal of joint work. It's gonna partly be coming because there's an incentive and the EU is very far ahead in some of its financial incentives. And the US might be ahead in terms of the structure of markets and the quickness with which new investments can move and the rapidity of the venture capital community in the US to move opportunity from the drawing board into commercial use. Those are also areas we can learn. And if I think about those technologies and how each of our policies might incentivize them, I see another way that we might do things jointly. So it's not just around aviation. It's not just around a carbon program. Those are elements that each of us are experimenting with and expanding to try to drive our emissions down. I think at the end though, the convergence that we're all seeking is where we agree. And I don't think we'll care all that much if the policies are different as long as they don't lead to competitiveness constraints on either side and as long as they meet the goal that we both set. 
Thank you very much. Now, um, I do want to come on to this question of, of technologies, and I, and I want to hear Jill's view amongst others. But, uh, Diederik, you've got some very uh, low-hanging fruit with quick yes or no questions coming to you. Uh, we have one from Joe Gudetti asking, are there chances for shipping carbon emissions to be included into the ETS by 2022? Uh, it's, uh, it's one of those yes or no questions that you seem to be getting today. Uh, yes, uh, um, it's going to be included in our proposal. We announced that earlier. Uh, whether that's a, uh, it entered into force in 2022, that's up to Pascal and you, to, uh, amongst others, uh, because the co-legislators uh, are determining uh, the speed of the real entry into force. But let's be optimistic. Uh, very soon after July 2021, uh, we will see proposals coming into force that also include maritime into the ETS. Okay, well, uh, you to raise it as well, so we've, we've at least touched on it today. Uh, Jill, to come back to the points that Jonathan was raising regarding technologies, I mean, what, what's needed to, to get some of these very, very promising options over the line? Is it subsidies, is it legislation, or is it just the, the, the sort of the growth of adoption? Well, there, there's some things that we've been talking about for sort of 10 to 15 years and they haven't quite got off the ground, like carbon capture and storage. And then there's more recently talking about direct air capture. And I think that probably does need some sort of global push, you know, the sort of moonshot Apollo mission type to, to really make some of these things happen. But also maybe a recognition that the starting point keeps changing. So one of the things I think we have learned globally is that we try and solve one problem, but sometimes the, the problem changes and shifts and we need to kind of keep up with that and don't do, keep trying to apply the same solution. So we need to be very um, nimble in terms of, you know, what are the technologies that are gonna be appropriate and available. I think the other thing is our knowledge has changed as we, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years, we keep learning more and more. The, the um, technology at our disposal for monitoring, reporting and verification, um, satellite technology to look at what's happening where becomes more more available and more useful to us um, and we're also we're at a stage in many parts of the world where we're thinking about the uses of hydrogen I think we need to think about that very carefully I'm, I'm sure it can be very valuable for us but we need to make sure that we fully understand what we're doing and that we don't un, end up with unintended consequences and I said earlier that one of the dangers of being a leader, um, whether it's the US or the EU, is sometimes there are missteps along the way. That if we rush, and this is an urgent situation, so we do tend to rush, we may make decisions that um, have implications that we haven't foreseen. So we need to make very sure that we're doing the right thing at the right time. And one way of doing that is having a broader conversation, bringing in as much expertise as possible. Um, so for these big and difficult technological issues, I think it is valuable to have different parts of the world working together on that. And I'd love to see the EU and, do, and the US doing more together to make sure that we have the broadest possible buy-in, understanding, the deepest knowledge of the consequences as well. Dietrich, I'm sure you agree with, with most of what Jill is saying there. Yes, I do. And I, I certainly agree that also with Jonathan that we could learn from each other or team up, uh, join forces on the innovative power of both continents. The American concept of innovation is completely different than the, the European concept of it, but both have their strength. And if you look, at, for instance, at our quest for a solid state battery technology, yeah, the, the next generation batteries that will bring a car to 700 kilometers, 
uh, and have much more storage power and you could even anticipate flying on it. Um, that requires, uh, in the words of Jill, a moonshot project. Uh, and I do think that our, our both our continents should join forces there uh, while using the competitive power. And, and we have concepts to do so. Same goes for fifth generation solar cells at the biological solar cell that is somewhere out there. And I'm sure that we or our kids are going to be smart enough to invent it and, and put it into practice. Uh, but we need much more investments from that. From the public side, well, Europe can take care of that because we're good at that. But also from the, let's say, the venture side, the venture capitalist side. Uh, and if I can live to see those days that the, the American strength of innovation is combined with the European, um, I'm, I know we are, we are going to be a lot closer to our solutions. Absolutely. I think that sounds very aspirational. Uh, I want to come on now, uh, sort of as a last section, to the COP26 and looking ahead to that. Um, but I'm going to start with Jill, because we've talked a lot today about the EU and the US. Uh, let us not forget there is a third party somewhere in between there now in the case of the UK. So why and, and where does the UK fall? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I don't want to bring up Brexit again. We're all sick of it. But, um, you know, where does the, is the UK left now as the host of the COP26 and what are your hopes for it? Firstly, I'd like to say that I'm the proud holder of an Irish passport, so okay. um, yeah, it should be taken into account before I answer that question, but I did, uh, I have worked for the UK government in the past. Um, obviously, a lot of things have been thrown out by COVID and I think oh, COP26 was meant to take place in Glasgow in November last year and it is the most significant COP or conference of the party since Paris, because it's the one where countries come back with their revised nationally determined contributions to try and bridge the gap between the ambition that that parties sought in Paris, which was to limit temperature increases globally to below two degrees and to aim for 1.5 degrees centigrade, and the pledges that they made on the action that they would take, which were added up to around three to four degrees uh, centigrade of warming. So, you know, we need to bridge that gap, and we've seen the EU moved from um, 40 to 55, and the UK has come out with 68% reduction by 2030, and I think 78% by 2035, what I'm sure the uh, UK Prime Minister would describe as a world-beating um, target there. But of course, we want to see those targets. There's a little bit of, of discussion that needs to happen, uh, and we also want to see the plans behind them so that they're not empty and meaningless targets. And I think also, from my perspective, uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, in the run up to Paris, I was working in industry. I think it's really important to remember that while the negotiations are very important, it's important to use and understand the, the use of the, the conference of the parties to rally the world around not only what we need to do, but what can be done. And the fact that civil society and businesses stand alongside countries in, in helping to meet that ambition. So I think that's something that I would like to see the UK government uh, recognize and I've been really pleased that um, the US in, in the new administration have kind of stepped into what has appeared to be a bit of a diplomatic vacuum. I'm sure there's been lots of activity from the UK government but that very visible activity around targets, around rallying um, countries to the COP26 cause and the need to ratchet up ambition I think is really welcome. So that's what I hope for. Um, I hope we we start to bridge that gap, but I think it's going to be a real challenge. And obviously, whether it takes place 
in Glasgow in November, which for those of you, and I think Jennifer, you do know Glasgow, that it's not a sort of socially distanced, well-ventilated place in November. It's very cold, usually wet and quite dark. And that therefore most meetings in Glasgow in November need to take place indoors with the windows shut. So I think, you know, there is that consideration about is you know how we have this meeting and how we have it so that it has the best impact. Thank you. Well, I want everyone's view on COP, but I'm going to use a question that has been sent in from uh, Stefan Engling uh, from Business Europe, uh, asking how the EU and the US can work together to reach a meaningful agreement on Article 6, the cooperative mechanisms at COP26. It's, it's a fairly, but I also want to get you just your general views and your general aspirations for COP26. Uh, Pascal, let me start with you first. Okay, uh, well, I will focus my comments on uh, COP26 on uh, something which I like very much from the UK government, which is the campaign mode. I mean, that's exactly the same way we designed the Paris Agreement uh, years ago. Having, uh, of course, the UN formal international negotiation uh, with the LDCs and so on, plus uh, concrete commitments uh, organized to make sure that we just not only negotiate targets or big principles, but we negotiate concrete commitments, sectorial commitments. And the six, I think it's six, six campaigns uh, the UK government is, uh, I would say, pushing forward uh, uh, regarding the COP26. It's a very good approach. And uh, then there are at least three of them where the EU has a key role to play. Uh, together with the US. The first one is the financing, the private, how do we keep on moving the ball of greening the financial system rules. And to be honest, the EU has been pioneering this for a couple of years now, and we are more than happy to have the, uh, the big US financial market and the SEC and the Fed and so on now on board. Uh, the second one is uh, EVs, and I think we can end up this year with both in the US and in the EU it's very same regulation to have an end date of uh, non-EV cars or thermal vehicles by 2035. That would make a huge difference for the global market. And the third one is deforestation. And uh, part of it would be related in the EU to the EU law on deforestation. That's a global first. I know there is an, a small as an equivalent debate uh, in the US Senate. And I think that uh, that would be even better if we could move this agenda on both sides of the Atlantic. Thank you. And Jutta, what's your aspiration for, for COP26? I can't hear her. And is, can't you hear me? I can hear you now, sorry. Yep. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, I, I really, of course, hope that we will have a good result for the uh, NDCs, so we will have better commitment. And I really believe that, as been said during uh, this conversation, that uh, the leadership from the US and the EU will be crucial in the deliverance uh, in that sense. And uh, I, I think every um, every conversation, every event, every um, different opinion building uh, thing that can be done uh, in front of Glasgow will be very important. And I also think uh, for the UK that it is actually not that um, bad that we, we have uh, 
COP this year instead of uh, last year. I think uh, now with the US leadership, it will be a better discussion in front of, of uh, Glasgow. And I hope really that that will help and facilitate the meeting. And then, of course, um, I think also the financial flows is crucial. Um, I mean, uh, that will be... The legislation will be one part, the target another, but then the financial flows that we actually uh, change the economy in the same way as we do with the legislation, uh, that that needs to be, it needs to take uh, further steps in Glasgow. Um, also making sure that uh, uh, countries who need better finance resources will get real uh, help uh, from, from the richer countries. And then uh, I, I will come back to, to the sectorial legislation and the ETS. I think there are many things that could be done there to help out and make sure that we have uh, a better competition in the world uh, that is more a uh, level uh, playing field where we can uh, have a competition that's fair also when it comes to the emissions and the prices. And... Yes, I hear you, Jonathan, and I hear the problems uh, um, that the U.S. is facing here, but still the ETS is also an American idea, as I understand it. Uh, you had lots of uh, help in, in the, the design of the ETS, and it is really a sharp tool, the, the, the sharpest one that we have in the, in the European Union. And I don't see that you have something that is as sharp yet, so... Uh, Please influence yourself from this. Thank you. Well, Jonathan, uh, you'd made a good point there, but maybe it's better that COP is this year rather than last year. What can we expect? So I, I want to put um, a kind of a vision that combines some of the pieces that people talked about, because I think that's where we're certainly seeing it come. There are two things in my mind about a climate negotiation, and, and I have had the I don't know if, the, if it's the honor or it's perhaps the, the difficulty. I have been at all of the COPs since the first one. Uh, and I see them in cycles. And there are periods of time where the internal negotiations are critical. If you don't have a global agreement, then nothing really moves forward. And the big agreements include uh, originally the Climate Convention. It includes the Kyoto Protocol. It includes, I would argue, Copenhagen, although that was very difficult. Uh, it includes discussions around uh, around Paris in particular. But then there are times in which what you need to do is national implementation because you have a big agreement. And the question is, what are countries doing to implement that agreement? How are they moving forward? What's the model for taking action at home? And then there are times when they come together. And I think Paris is a moment where they have to come together. So we need to finish the rule book. I think if we don't finish it, the global community looks at this discussion and says, well, what was the point? Why did you have to do this? You couldn't agree on Article 6 on trading. You couldn't agree on the transparency rules. There are some new decisions that have to be done on adaptation. Why didn't you? So we have to do that to demonstrate continued success and movement. And I think the UK is paying attention to that. But the second one, and this one is equally important, is that unless you actually have national action, and I don't mean only a target. I mean, you have to have a target and you have to back it up with policy. The NDC is the target announcement. Now what we need is a 2050 plan. Now what we need is a program to implement. And all of us have been talking about different ways to do that. Uh, Yuta's arguments about a market are compelling, 
but there are also compelling arguments on innovation and compelling arguments on regulatory action and compelling arguments that will differ on each sector. We have to bring that together and we have to have all the countries at the table. And that's another problem here. It's very easy for us to have a conversation because while we might disagree on some particulars, we are in broad alignment. The US and the EU see the problem in very similar ways. That is not the way it's seen in all countries. As I look at the conversations I'm having with Brazil, their emphasis is on the fact that a standing tree in the Brazilian Amazon is worth much less than a tree that might have been cut, either to expand a farmland or to dig underneath it for minerals or even to look at selling the timber. They don't have an alternative. And so far, we're not prepared to have them in our markets because we don't believe in their transparency or the legitimacy or their compliance. Other countries look at transitions and see that the transition is more expensive than the status quo and are not prepared to change. Unless that group of countries comes to the table and makes significant commitments to step forward, we'll fail. And so the COP has to look at that as well. And I think those are going to be in the category, some of which the campaigns that Pascal has talked about and which I too find very compelling, but others are going to be in what's the adaptation agreement? How do we manage some of these finance questions where we are falling short and while the U.S. is looking to increase, we all have to increase? How do we think about the structure of things that are complicated and very politically difficult like loss and damage? Those are things that have to come together if we want the other countries. And I don't mean the U.S. or the EU because between us, that's only 28 countries. I mean the 150 additional countries that really have a different conversation and for which our discussion hasn't, hasn't yet figured in. We have to help them, we have to encourage them, we have to bring them in because the COP is gonna require all of us to move together. And I don't think we've yet figured out how to have that larger engagement fully successfully. Well, I think you've very clearly articulated some of the challenges, some of the legitimate concerns on all sides. And, and there are some tough questions to be asked and answered um, at COP. 26. Diederik, uh, listening to all these different viewpoints, how optimistic are you uh, that we will see something concrete, something positive, or, or is this going to be just another round? No, 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 certainly not. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. And uh, having been uh, at almost all COPs, although I must admit at the first seven, I was hanging outside on a banner because I was working for Greenpeace. Um, but um, Having that experience, I fully concur with Jonathan. Uh, you have those those cops where the plumbing is important, uh, where you have to do the technical work and it has to be successful. That wasn't always that easy. And you have those cops where the the inspiration is 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 uh, crucial, where the momentum has to be created in which the world can move on. And this is one that has to do both at the same time. So it's a really big. Uh, uh, task ahead of us. But I, I'm very optimistic because actually what we're seeing right now is what we were used to see only at a COP itself. Announcements by countries moving forward. I mean, uh, the announcement from the US is a monumental one and it happened half a year before we actually enter into Glasgow. Did, that gives us six months, first of all, to put the uh, US, uh, as Jonathan said himself, uh, on the spot saying, okay, that's your target, what's the plan? Um, I'm hopeful for that and I'm uh, expecting it, I'm anxious to see it. 
Uh, but also to use the, the example of the EU and the US and to a certain extent also China to move the rest of the world along, exactly the task that Jonathan prescribed. We, we don't have a COP of two weeks in which everything has to happen. And that was the utter failure of Copenhagen, eh? trying to cram everything into actually in two days uh, is, is a recipe for failure. Now we have that, that this period, and we already started, we have now six months to go towards finalizing that work in, uh, in Glasgow. And that, uh, that goes for, that applies to both the plumbing work so I also encourage the UK and the, the co-organizing, uh, including Italy and the other important countries to, to move ahead with that. So we shouldn't lose time um, for that, but also the other part, the inspirational part. We have a, a, a six exciting months uh, ahead of us, a very important month, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, optimistic month. Okay, thank you very much. We've gone a little bit over time there, so I'm just going to ask uh, in one word, Pascal, are you optimistic? Yes or no? <laughs> yes, and I must say that building on what Diderik said, it's, you know, the, the COP is like the, the 8th of March for women's rights. I mean, it's not one day per year, it's every, every day. So climate action is not two weeks per year, it's every day. And actually last week, we had another big game changer in Germany. Okay, that's more than one. <laughs> I'm going to stop you. That's more than one word. Game changer, and we have been game changer every month or every week. So that's I'm very optimistic for the COP and for climate action. Thank you, Yuta. In in fewer words than Pascal, are you optimistic? Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. Yes, I share the enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, and Jill. Finally, to you. Optimistic, but not complacent. I think would be how I characterize it. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's a lovely way to round up. Uh, apologies, we started a little late, so we've run over a bit of time. But thank you all very much, ladies and gentlemen, for a really good discussion. I feel everyone got engaged and raised the points they wanted to. Thank you very much to our audience. Uh, we didn't get to all the questions because there were so many. And to those following on social media, sharing the hashtag and sharing their thoughts. So please do keep an eye on this hashtag, EA Debates, as they will be showing you more interviews, more debates, more discussions from your active life in the coming weeks and months. And with that, I wish you all a very good afternoon and a great weekend.